What's going on? Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. You know, 2019, um, when 2019 drew to a close, it was kind of a rough year for my family. Uh, my wife lost her brother. We had some other family crises. And I went uh, at the end of 2019, I remember 2019 coming to a close on New Year's Eve saying, you know what? I'm so glad that year's behind me. I'm so looking forward to 2020. Let's get on with it. I'm not making that mistake this year. Um, but nonetheless, Happy New Year. And let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would anoint every word spoken this morning, uh, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Both the words here that I, I have uh, will be speaking, Lord, let them be on your behalf, not of my own. And the words that will be shared uh, among the men this morning. Bless us with the presence of your Spirit as we come together to, with the gift and the, and the joy to, uh, to look into your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was looking through uh, a list of the top 10 most corrupt leaders in recent history. Um, and I'm not going to go through the whole list, obviously, but it was interesting to me that um, the top five embezzled somewhere between $1 billion and, uh, let me see, it was $35 billion while they were in office. Uh, the, the, the most corrupt leader, according to the list I looked at, was Mohamed Suharto, um, who uh, he embezzled between somewhere between 15 and 35 billion dollars during 31 years as president of Indonesia. Why am I beginning with that? Um, because it's going to come as a shock to you. Sometimes bad people get in leadership, and um, we need to understand what to do in light of that. And I'm not just talking about politics. Uh, I'm talking about people who may be leaders right over us. So whether it's a president or a parent a CEO or a mid-level manager, whether it's a four-star general or a second lieutenant, sometimes we have superiors who are not always the, the most honest people we want. We're going we're gonna to look today at some of those. Um, uh, but, we're also, but the reason I'm setting it up that way, because that, that is the time, it's times like that, where you, we all must keep lay hold of, this, of God, the God that we're going to see today in the name El Elyon. It comes from, as you can see on the screen, El, uh, which is Hebrew for, in the singular, for deity, God, goddess, or in this case, God, Yahweh. We talked about Elohim, right? The, the, the plural of that referred to creator God, um, and, and, and we see El now return here. Uh, the second word, Elion, there is, uh, means something that is higher, highest, or uppermost. So put those together, and what do you get? God most high, right? So, um, so, so when we look at these names, you know, uh, at least what I've been doing is going back and, and, and also following from the book and looking at the, t the place in the Bible where they're used, where, like, where they come up the first time, all right? And, and, and I'm just going to focus today on one passage uh, where El Elyon is used the first time. It's in Genesis 14, if you want to turn there. Um, and just uh, as, a, as a way of, of, of a little bit of background, um, this involves Abraham, or Abram at this point, uh, and his battle with um, the four kings who are taking over the land. So um, an evil but powerful king, Kedolimer, he's the king of Elam, uh, had formed an alliance with three other powerful evil kings uh, intending to conquer all of the, uh, what is the, the Transjordan area. <coughs> and that's, of course, the area now that's bordering uh, the land in which... Uh, Abraham resides, where the land promised to Abraham. Uh, and the kings who joined him are Tidal, king of Goyim, uh, Amarathal, uh, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of, uh, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Uh, and then there's five other earthly kings 
themselves, again, an ungodly kings that, are, uh, that have banded together to try and uh, stave them off, to try and fight them off. These are the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, Zeboim, and Bela. So we see all this coming together in Genesis 14, 8 through 9. One thing I want you to note is all these kings were seeking to build and protect kingdoms based on what? On worldly power and authority. They were forming political alliances with those they believed could protect them. Meanwhile, in contrast, you see Abraham, who, is I- who, who remains faithful to God, is relatively at peace in his own land. Um, so unlike these, these kings, you know, he's, he's, he's in that space of peace. And at this point, he doesn't have any dog in the fight. So the first question we might want to ask ourselves as we come, come to this text is, uh, are we seeking alliances with others, or are we seeking alliances with God? Okay, uh, are we looking to align ourselves with the powers of this world or God? Because that becomes a, an opening question that we need to consider our, whenever we're facing any kind of a, of a conflict or situation. So, okay, as the battle rages, the four kings uh, that are led by Kedalamar are defeated. Uh, they defeat the five other kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they, state, they take all their goods, they capture all their people, and take them away. And among those captured is who? Is, is Lot. Right, the nephew of Abraham. Uh, so now family's involved. So now two is Lot. Uh, again, uh, this might be a lesson for us because we can be living straightforward, uh, you know, lives that are, are largely right with God. That doesn't mean the people we love and the people closest to us aren't going to get caught in the web of this world. So we need to call on God in these times, just as Abraham does. Um, and, and if you're in that situation now. God here, he is here, is here. He hears you. He's with you. All right, so who, this is where we, we come now to, uh, let's see, did I catch up here? Okay, uh, Genesis 14, 14. So when Abraham heard that, th- that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of, Na- north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So upon hearing of the invasion and the capture of Lot, Abraham musters up 318 men and he pursues and he defeats uh, Kedolomer and his allies. This is not a small feat. Think about it. First, he pursued all the way to Dan which is about 140 miles from, uh, from his hometown in, in Hebron at that time. <coughs> That's 140 miles by foot, by the way, not by Humvee, okay? And then during that night, during the night no less, he then pursues them to Hobah, which is another 100 miles north of Dan. So uh, in all, he pursues these armies for 240 miles before he even engages them. And when he catches them, he defeats them. And he brings back Lot and his possessions and his family. And all of those also taken captive. But think about that. One man with an army of only, of only 318 men travels 240 miles and engages the armies of four allied kings who had previously conquered a large part of Transjordania and the area south of the Dead Sea. That's an amazing feat. It's not just the Washington football team beating the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? It's uh, more, I'd say it's more like the Robinson Rams defeating the Kansas City Chiefs. In other words, it's miraculous. It's a demonstration of a power, not of this world, but 
What happens next is what I want us to focus on. If we can. Okay. Uh, then after his return from the defeat, Kedolomer and the of, of Kedolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, okay, Abram, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and water. Now he was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High. So we're seeing El Elohim, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elion, Elion sorry, uh, God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He gave, and he gave him a tenth of all. Okay, so the first question we might have here is, who is this Melchizedek? <coughs> this is the only time we see him in the Old Testament. In fact, there's, there's, there's very little said about him. He, he, see, he comes on the scene, and then he disappears. Um, and we know nothing of his ancestry or his descendants, right? But we do know a couple things here. We do know that he's king of Salem, and Salem is derived from Shalom, meaning city of peace. In addition, we also know from Psalm 76, 2, that Salem is the same as what? As Jerusalem, the future, the future city of King David. <coughs> we also know he is both a king and a priest of El Elyon, of the most go uh, God Most High. In fact, his name means king of righteousness. And we see that Melchizedek, as a priest of God Most High, also does what a priest would do here. Okay? He brings an offering of bread and wine. This is a priestly act that recognizes the significance of this moment that it was El Elyon who engineered Abraham's victory, not Abram. We also see, however, a second king come on the scene, okay, an earthly king who approaches Abram uh, following his defeat of the invaders, the king of Sodom. Okay, and, and, and note what happens next. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I've, sw I've sworn to the Lord, again, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abram rich. Okay, I want, you I want us to focus here on Abram's response to these, these two kings. <coughs> First note that the response of Abram to Melchizedek is followed in this text immediately by the king of Sodom. So, this is a little more meaningful than it might look on the appearance in, in your Bible because in the original Hebrew text, this, this is a structure. It's, it's actually set up as a parallel structure. And, and, and the reason I'm saying that is with the, with the author here, what Moses is calling us to do here actually is, is draw out the contrast between these two lessons, these two responses that Abram has. He wants us to compare and look at that. Okay? So it's not just narrative that's going on here. He's conveying an important lesson. So to Melchizedek, Abraham offers a tithe of all that he secured through his victory. Okay, this is an offering to El Elyon. Uh, Abraham knows that this king is a priest of God Most High, that, he, that, that God Most High secured against the victory he got against the four armed king, uh, kings um, and rescued Lot, and allowed him to rescue Lot. And Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, is the only person that Abraham recognizes as his spir spiritual superior. Everyone else is just a worldly byproduct. As such, when Melchizedek brings a blessing of, brine, of bread and wine, Abraham ex accepts it not as a reward for himself, but as a tribute to El Elyon. And in turn, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. 
Okay, now consider king, the king of Sodom, who makes a very different offer and receives a very different response from Abram. He offers to forfeit all of the riches that Abram uh, reclaimed uh, on his behalf from the, the, the invaders. He's going to give Abraham all of it back. He's offering to give it all up for Abraham and give it to Abraham. <coughs> so he's offering something that seems like a pretty good deal, something that's very valuable to this world. Um, it seems perhaps like one, an offer that Abraham would be a fool not to take, um, Abraham. But this Abraham doesn't take it. See, the short-term worldly gain is often Satan's greatest tool. He'll use it to try and tempt us, just as he tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4, 4 through 12. Um, so we shouldn't think that he won't try to do the same with us. And Abraham sees right through this. Uh, so how does he respond? First, he says he has sworn to the Lord God Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, Abraham realizes that El Elyon, as possessor of heaven and earth, is over heaven and earth, over all things, for God cannot be possessed by his own possessions. <coughs> uh, Abraham also notes that he has made an oath to El Elyon, God Most High. And so if you're going to make an oath to God Most High, it's an oath you don't break, right? But second, we, we can see in the content of his oath, and in the content I we need to look at, it says that he will take nothing from the king of Sodom. And the reason is to prevent the king from claiming that he, the king of Sodom, in fact, made Abraham rich. Abraham won't even allow an inkling of credit belonging to God to be given to an earthly king. Again, going back, because just as Jesus rebuked Satan, who promised him all the glory if he bowed down to worship him, he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. <coughs> Luke 4.8 is where that is. <coughs> Abraham knows his, his reward will not come from the kings of this world, but only from the God Most High. This raises another question for us. To whom are we giving credit for our blessings? If there's anything good in us, anything lovely about us, anything beneficial that comes from our mouths or our hands, it's from God. And he's not only in the miracles, okay? He's also in the everyday. Abram lived his life aligned with that truth. Okay, and there was a truth that, that not only gave him this attitude of gratitude that we see coming out forth here, it also gave him courage in the middle of, of battle and peace and wisdom in the middle of turmoil and confusion. Because El Elyon is on his side, just as he is on yours if you put your trust in him. All right, so I want us to turn back to Melchizedek here uh, just for a moment. Because um, I want us to focus on how he points us to Jesus. Because remember, it's important when we're looking at the Old text, Testament text that that we look through the lens given to us by Jesus through the New Testament, right? As, as um, Augustine put it, new is in the old contained, and old is in the new explained, okay? So let's go back to this question, who is this Melchizedek? Well, some believe he's actually a theophany, okay? An appearance of Jesus Christ uh, in the Old Testament. I think it's more likely, however, that he's more of a type of Jesus. That's a form of, of typology or um, that we're seeing. So what do I mean by that? Really simply this, that who we see in Melchizedek symbolizes or foreshadows the Messiah. We see types throughout the Old Testament in persons and things and events. Adam, in Paul's discussion of, of um, he refers to, uh, Paul refers to Adam in his discussion uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Um, 
uh, it refers to Jesus Christ as the second Adam. So that there's an example right there. Um, and there's a couple others, like Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness as a type or a symbol or foreshadowing of the crucifixion uh, of Jesus. We see where John uh, 3.14 says, tells us this. But, but you see the point I'm trying to make. It's, 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 a, it's a symbol. It's a type. So here we see that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. He foreshadows Jesus in some way. But how? Um, so let's look uh, at God's word on this. Okay, Psalm 110, in which David prophesies the drawing together of this, these Levitical offices of the king and priest, the Messiah, okay, says this. The Lord says to my Lord, until, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day uh, of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, 9 through 10 also tells us, um, we have been made, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God, again, as we see, as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, and Hebrews later explains, explains on uh, this order of uh, Melchizedek this way. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, Abraham uh, as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also apportioned a tenth uh, part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. The point that the author of Hebrews is drawing out here is that Jesus, like Melchizedek, is both king and priest. It's this ancient unity, one that preceded the whole line of Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, right? Um, and this unity now is reestablished in, in Jesus Christ. This necessarily, by the way, would end uh, the need for the Aaronic priesthood uh, and the system of sacrifices um, that through which God's people sought atonement. Jesus is both king and priest, and as priest, he sacrificed himself by his death on the cross, not as part of Aaron's line, okay, because he's the eternal high priest, the, the, the priest of the new covenant that he's given, and a part which we have the option to, to, to become part of by putting our faith in him. <coughs> but he also comes from the line of David, fulfilling the promise of the Davidic covenant from the line of David, as we know, would come the Messianic king. So, so again, we're seeing both of these offices, priest and king, united in this one person, Jesus. He is both our eternal priest and our eternal king. So if then Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, then who Melchizedek is to Abraham is who Jesus is to us. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. Jesus is our king of righteousness. Melchizedek is the king of Salem or peace. Jesus is our king of peace. Melchizedek is perpetually a priest. Jesus is perpetually our priest, mediating between us and the Father, as John 14, uh, 6 tells us. And the author of Hebrews uh, concludes it this way, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests that came before, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. 
Because this he did once for all when he offered him up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a man, a son, uh, made perfect forever. Okay, so, so you might be asking at this point, and I'm just going to, I'm closing up here in a second. What does all of this have to do with El Elyon, the Most High God? Well, just as Melchizedek was a priest of El Elyon, so now Jesus is the eternal priest of El Elyon. He's the only mediator between us and the Father. And, <coughs> and as John, as again, as John 14, 6 tells us. But not only is he our great mediator, he also has done away with the sacrifice. He's paid the price for us such that if we trust in him, we're forever reconciled to El Elyon, the creator, the one who knitted us together in a womb and ordained every day of our lives before we even were. This is Christ, the great high priest, who gave himself as the final sacrifice that no earthly priest could pay, right? But he's also king. Uh, Paul, in 1 Timothy 6.15, notes that he is blessed He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Lord and Savior, the one who loves us so much, who gave his life for us. That person rules over all. The question we have to ask ourselves is what do we do about that? Well, for one, take note, he is king. If you haven't accepted this truth, let today be that day. Okay, it's time to set aside the fake power of this world, the power of the kings who align themselves with one another trying to seek power. If there's... None are more powerful than Jesus. We need to all lay hold of that, and I pray that you will if you haven't already. But if you have accepted this truth, live in it. Take comfort in it. Align your priorities around Jesus, around this true king. Never revere nor fear those corrupted or by or in this world, whether they're politicians, CEOs, ungodly religious leaders, even your own bosses. Sure, you got to do what you're told, but only out of reverence to Christ and in alignment with his wisdom. And above all, never fear the consequences of living out your faith. El Elyon, the God most high, is on your side. He's got your back. That's a pretty amazing thing. That's what Jesus has done for us. <coughs> but there's something more. One final point I want to make, uh, and um, I want us to look at Matthew's gospel this time. When Jesus first speaks to the 11 disciples following his resurrection, what does he say? The first thing, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's an amazing statement. His opening point of clarity to the disciples. He claims the kingdom rightfully his. He is king over heaven and earth. But then he adds this pesky word. It's un in the, in the Greek. Uh, and it means so then or therefore. But either way, it's pointing to a result. It's saying, as a result of the fact that all authority has been given in me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In this I see a simple yet direct and pointed response that Jesus is calling on us to have. It's not go and amass the most toys. It's not go and achieve the highest rank. It's not even go and deliver as much as you possibly can for your wife and kids. It's go and make disciples. These are the instructions of the eternal priest of El Elyon and the words of our king on high. So I pray that we would, this year, respond accordingly. Okay, so I'm going to close with that. I've got a couple discussion questions here for you. Um, 
you can read those. And um, let me close us in prayer, and we can separate and go into our group. Yeah. <coughs> Father God, God on high, our highest God, El Elyon, thank you. Thank you that you rule over our lives and you rule over everything in our lives, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can turn to you. Thank you that you are our great mediator, our great king, the one in whom we can place all of our trust, Lord. Help us to do that today. Help us, Lord, to trust in you, Lord. Help us, and we ask you to send your spirit, our wonderful counselor. Guide us in our discussions this morning and guide us in throughout our day. And God, guide us throughout this year, 2021. We have no idea what lays ahead of us, but you know, you know every single day, God. Give us the strength to see you in it, the good and the bad. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.